This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome to Nursing Australia Summer Series presents Sex Ed. This is 2022 in nursing and healthcare all wrapped up. What were the trending topics of the year? Meet subject matter experts in sexual health, healthcare law, and aged care. Now, these aren't rehashes of previous Nursing Australia podcast episodes. These are deep dives into the most popular topics out there in the Twitter sphere, the cybersphere, the Googles, the interwebs, social media right across Australasia. What were those top three topics? Well, sexual health, consent, mandatory reporting, healthcare law, legal issues in nursing, and aged care. So, this three-part series kicks off today. Welcome to Nursing Australia Summer Series presents Sex Ed. You're listening to the Nursing Australia podcast, the show that brings you news, education, powerful interviews, stories from the front line, and experts to share their knowledge with you. This episode will tackle confidentiality, mandatory disclosure, age of consent. Let's unpack exactly what consent is. It's been hard to ignore. The subject of consent over the last couple of years, 2022, it has been right at the top of many meeting agendas across many organisations, and it really is healthcare that's at the front line of delivering that, educating people, uh, safeguarding people. And how working in this space does it interact with my health record? It's always a dubious topic. We do love my health record. However, let's jump right in with our friends from Sexual Health Victoria, Sam Reed and Sarah Harwood. At the top of this piece, you will hear some audio, which will give us a bit of a background about Sexual Health Victoria as an organisation. But then we're going to dive in to those aforementioned topics. Thank you for joining us on Nursing Australia Summer Series, Sex Ed. What is the best thing about working here? Um, it's certainly the people. I think their passion for sexual health and providing support for our clients, for our students, for, you know, really for the community and just seeing, you know, people come through and be empowered with that is just fantastic. There's no topic we won't talk about and there's no topic that we can't help people with. It's one of the best things about Sexual Health Victoria. It's all about trying to normalise sexuality and uh, help people express themselves in a sexual way and really focus on what feels good and what feels safe and um, creating dynamics within their own relationships that are good and safe and nourishing for them. Uh, we have a couple of clinics in Melbourne. We've got the Box Hill one and then we've also got one in the CBD. It's just near Flinders Street Station so it's really accessible. Sex education is important in schools because when teachers do it, they're really good at teaching the, what we call plumbing and prevention. So they're really good at getting the banana penis and showing them how to put a condom on. But they don't do the really important stuff. The really important stuff is the relationships, how to conduct yourself in a relationship, how to ask for consent, how to give consent, how to make sure that someone still has that condom on when, they, when you turn around. Sexual Health Victoria has been providing services across the state for over 50 years. We come from a small and humble beginnings and now we've expanded our services. What we're looking forward to in the future is to continue those services, to continue to reach all parts of Victoria and for all people to have best of sexual health. 
Hi everybody, my name's Sam, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet today, and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and welcome any Aboriginal people here today. Uh, I have worked in primary healthcare for a very many years of my career, and my background as a primary healthcare nurse, as you can probably hear from my accent, has kind of been all around the world. So did my training in New Zealand, worked in primary healthcare there, same thing in the UK, and then um, back to Australia. And I'd like to introduce you to my fabulous colleague, Sarah, as well. My name's Sarah. I have been in Australia nursing for about eight and a half years now, and I've been at Sexual Health Victoria for the past three. My um, nursing background is quite varied, mostly um, surgical, gynaecological. But when I moved to Australia, I did move into practice nursing. So my background in the Australian health context is very much a practice nursing background, and it's great to be back at Atna. So let's talk about sex. So at Sexual Health Victoria, and as you've seen, we've rebranded from Family Planning Victoria, so we're very excited for that change. So we'd also just like to start by saying we're not lawyers, we're nurses. So this presentation and any related materials are for training, educational and general information purposes only, and um, not be relied upon in substitution for legal, medical or other professional advice. Please, please don't use us as your evidence if you're going to uh, <laughs> be in a sticky situation. So in this session, we're going to be looking at a few different things. We're going to be looking at consent to medical treatment and what that actually means for people that we may be, um, you know, people coming into our care, whether it be we, we would use the word clients, but I'm sure many of you would be using the word patients. Um, we're going to look at um, confidentiality and what that actually means and the limitations to that, because there are definite some very um, clear limitations to confidentiality. We're going to look at sex and the age of consent. Now, that does change from place to place in Australia, so we'll try and keep it um, relevant to the people in the room. We're going to look at consent and what that looks like and how do we talk to people about consent um, in our clinical practice. We're going to touch on Medicare and I'll also talk a little bit about the My Health Record as well because that's very relevant for us. And we're going to look at mandatory reporting and failure to disclose as well. So let's meet Brody. So Brody comes into our practice and is a 15-year-old young person, attends our practice to talk about contraception. Brody tells you that she would like an implant on today. So you and the doctor have both just been able to speak to Brody and have assessed Brody as a mature minor. So Brody asks you if you, if you can tell her mother. So we, we assume that we have a legal and ethical obligation as healthcare practitioners to actually provide confidential care to young people. There's always exemptions to that. There's always a grey lining to every kind of anything that we do. There's always fine print. So it's really important that when you're having that consultation that we're actually talking and explaining that clearly to the client, so for Brody in this case. So I would say something along the lines, and I preface most of my clinical appointments using this, that anything we talk today is confidential, Anyone that's involved in your healthcare within this clinic may have access to my notes. There's some situations where that confidentiality doesn't apply. That's if there's harm that's potentially happening for yourself, someone else, or if there is sex occurring outside of the law. Because I really want it to be very, very clear that there are some potential instances that I need to talk to someone else about that. And it's not just about parents. It's about a whole range of other factors, which we'll kind of dig into a little bit in this session. But so we want to consider that as a blanket rule, yes, you're providing, we're providing confidential healthcare, but there are some very clear 
boundaries to how we're able to do that. So thinking about notifiable diseases. As an um, organisation, we do, and I'm sure, you know, I remember practice nursing filling out the Department of Health form, sending back some de-identified information, but it does depend on the infection to what sort of information the department's going to require from you. Um, consent to disclosure. So did the, does Brody actually give you consent to provide that information? <clears throat> disclosure to other health professionals. So within my scope of practice, I'm obviously not providing scripts for Implanon. While I'll insert it, I will need to talk to somebody else to get that script for that person. Um, risk to self or others. We're going to talk about mandatory reporting in this session. So that's definitely where that ties in. Legal duty to disclose. So we're going to be talking about failure to disclose legislation, which is Victorian legislation. And there's also unintentional breaches, which probably happen more than anything else that I come across. So we know of multiple stories when we're working with young people. They've been to a clinic, they've seen someone, they've had really great healthcare, they've been offered a asymptomatic STI screen, but the young person didn't have their Medicare card, so they didn't have the Medicare card number on file. The pathology form's been printed out. They've done their test, it's gone sent, sent to the pathology lab, the pathology lab's processed it, that's great, but they've sent the bill to the home address, yeah? So it doesn't matter how well we do all of these other things, it only takes one small part of, the, of that whole process to really let that young person down and have that confidentiality broken. Um, so there's, you know, I'm sure we can all think of situations where that has actually occurred in, in real life situations. So it's just thinking about the whole of practice process when we are working with young people, particularly about how do we make sure that it's safe? Because all it takes is a situation like that for, to happen and there's an awful lot of distrust and barriers that go up automatically for that person to be able to re-access healthcare in a way that they feel that they're, they're able to be supported. Okay, so consent to sex and age. So Brodie says that she and her partner Thomas have been having consensual sex. Tick. Thomas turned 17 last week. Is this legal? Yes, so yes, that is legal. So the definition of sex in Victoria is which age? 16, yes. So... This is exactly what I say to young people. I ask them the same questions. I say, tell me, what is the age? And you get 16, 18, 12. And that's because it can be really tricky. And it's really tricky for young people. And it can be really tricky for us as well. The first thing is there always must be consent-free agreement. And it's really important to really clearly unpack that with young people. And we'll talk a bit more about that. And it's obviously been in the media an awful lot. Um, people think that we haven't been talking about consent until now. Um, we've all been talking about consent all through our careers the whole time. But um, the definition of sex is when a penis, finger, object, or any part of a person is fully or partially inside another person's vagina, anus, or any kind of oral sex. And it's important to unpack with young people what sex means because young people think that sex means penetration. So it's important to spell that out and it's important to use language in a way that they understand because they don't, often don't know what the word penetration might mean. And if they are someone who is outside the mainstream schooling system or impacted by um, other types of trauma, they may not have had any access to any kind of sexual health education whatsoever and may not understand this terminology. So it's really important at the start to unpack that. So we know that the age of consent to sex in Victoria is 16. <coughs> 
But why it gets tricky is because we do have this legal defence in Victorian law where there is this, this gap. So we have this gap between, basically between 12 and 14, you know, that does say that young people can consent to sex as long as there's no more than a 24-month age gap. And you've probably heard that and people commonly say, oh, it's two years. But it actually needs to be um, 24 months because if someone's about to turn a certain age, it's going to extend that 24 months quite a bit. So that's relevant as well. Also, if somebody is in um, slightly older, so once someone is 16, they can, can consent to sex with someone older than them. And once they're 16 to 18, they must not have sex with someone who's in a position of care, supervision or authority over them. And that's really important to unpack with young people as well because they get really concerned about what that means. So they know what the common ones are. So I'll ask them, so who's in a position of care, supervision or authority over you? And they'll say, okay, um, that's my parents. Yep, yep, that's my teachers. And they're pretty clear on those sorts of things. You know, medical professionals, they sort of understand understand that but sometimes they're less sure about other people that actually could be a very similar age to them so it could be their boss at McDonald's it could be a youth worker it could be a church leader so it's really important to unpack those things when we're talking about consent mm -hmm. and we want to consider is there consent equality so is there mutuality in that relationship and has there been any coercion and in a session I did this week with young people I asked them if anybody knew what the word coercion meant and these were year eight students, so they were 12 to 14, and none of them knew what the word coercion meant until we started to unpack what that terminology meant. Mm. So that's really important as well. And the laws around sex are the same as the sexting laws, so sending images as well. So sexuality and consent education is now a mandatory part of the Victorian curriculum for government and Catholic schools in Victoria, and it needs to be um, taught in an age-appropriate way. How that is disseminated can be very variable, as you may well be aware, and often taught by the health and PE teachers or the school nurses, and it, it can often solely fall on their responsibility. But really what needs to happen is this whole school approach, a whole community approach. Well, we're talking about consent, not just to sex, but consent to any kind of touching right from a very, very young age all the way through our different community systems. So when we ask these young people about what it was like going to their GP practice, what do you think their biggest concern was? Yeah, their number one concern is confidentiality. The other thing that they are most concerned about is judgment. So fear of being judged. A number of trans and gender diverse people who experienced menstruation had also reported that they really wished they had a better understanding of consent, including the scope and conditions about being allowed to say no and how to go about saying no. One person says, like, my first sexual partner and relationship was abusive. Like, it was definitely not healthy. He kind of manipulated me into not using condoms and that sort of thing. And I was not able to stop it. So knowing that young people are screaming out for education about consent, and we can really bring that into our conversation, adding it into the heads assessment. The studies do show that you know, when you think about all the people that a young person might go to for health information, nurses are up there. So, you know, whether you start that conversation or not, we know that they, they actually want us to start that conversation, that we, they want us to open the door, to be non-judgmental, to ask them how they're going. And then, you know, 
they'll test you a little bit, I find, and then once you kind of pass their test that they've un unknowingly set up for you, then you'll probably be able to build this therapeutic relationship with them. But they're not going to come out with it necessarily, particularly if you are the person that they see more regularly, if you're not just a one-off visit for them. So it's about how do we use our language to be able to facilitate that, that trust-building relationship. Yep. So being really clear and explicit about what consent means and what confidentiality means, ask them. So instead of saying, do you know this consultation is confidential, again, they might not understand what that means. Tell me what confidentiality means, a bit like all the tools we use to check understanding with all of our patients. So again, in one of the Archer's study, looked at young people who had reported any unwanted sex. And these figures are shocking. You'll see that they're highest for our young people who identified as trans and gender diverse. The main reasons they reported this unwanted sex was pressure. So because they thought they should. And actually, when we unpack that and we look at how many young people are actually having penetrative sex, the rates are actually quite low. But young people, they think they're all doing it. If I think everyone thinks everyone's doing it. <laughs> so is the consent, so let's go further than that. So was this consent freely given? Was doing something sexual with someone is a decision that should be made without pressure, force, manipulation, or while drunk or high? So unpacking that with the young people. So what is, so explaining what is coercion, what is reproductive coercion? You know, he wouldn't let me out of the car until I gave him a kiss. He threatened to beat up my brother unless I gave him a blowjob. Yep, these are the real stories that young people tell us. It can be reversible, so you can change your mind at any stage, even if you're drunk and high and decided to go along with it at the start. You change your mind at any point, that's absolutely fine. And you haven't led them on, which is what I often hear young people say. Informed, be honest. For example, if someone says they'll use a condom and they don't, that's not consent. The young people I spoke to this week didn't know what stealthing was. Yeah, so when someone knowingly takes off a condom during sex or deliberately damages the condom during sex, and that does happen, unfortunately, as well. Enthusiastic, so if someone isn't excited or into it, it's not consent, and that in specific. So saying one thing, like going to the bedroom to make out, doesn't mean they've said, sex, said yes to everything. So yes, I've had a kiss, but whoa, hang on a minute, what are you touching there? So be clear, enthusiastic, informed that they need to verbalise it. That just a, mm, doesn't mean that someone's into it. It needs to be verbalised. If they don't have capacity to verbalise, then there isn't consent. So thinking about Medicare, so many practices will be using some sort of MBS item numbers when they're seeing um, patients and clients and particularly young people. And so thinking about what information is being taken when those billings go through. So say implant on insertions and removals, we know that there's specific item numbers that quite clearly identify that as a contraceptive implant. So what age is that person? So when we think about Medicare, lots of people get really confused about whether they can, young people can have their own card or whether they need to take their parents' card. Most of the systems now can look up Medicare numbers without the physical card, which is great. And we know that young people can actually access their own card and they can be listed on two cards from the age of 15. So that's really good to talk to young people about that if they want to be able to access their own healthcare, 
to support them with that. There's a form that they need to fill in, but obviously they need to find the form, fill in the form and get it into Medicare. So there is a bit of a process that you can actually support your clients to do that with. Once young people hit the age of 14, automatically the information through MBS and the PBS is now confidential to the parents or the guardians that are linked to that Medicare card. Unless, of course, there's specific things in place from a legislative point of view or it's gone through the court system. We know that parents can try and access information. They can put a written request into Medicare to actually get the history for people aged over 14, but it does have to go through the legal process for that to happen. So it's not something that they just write a letter and then they'll get the, get the information. When we think about Medicare, that's one of the big reasons that young people don't access services or will access services that don't require Medicare cards. So it's places like the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic, which are, don't have an out-of-pocket fee here in Melbourne, and they don't always use the Medicare system. So they'll go, they'll actually, quite savvy, they'll go places where they don't even have to consider this. We also have a hardship-funded Sexual Health Victoria for this situation as well, if we're concerned about um, the confidentiality, particularly if they're at risk or they're a vulnerable person. When I thought about this last night, I thought about the My Health Record. So that's something that since I've been in Australia has kind of really come into full use. We don't use it at Sexual Health Victoria for confidentiality reasons, um, but I do know that many of you in the room will be using it and it's a really great resource for many things. Um, so just being very clear that when you're writing notes and putting in diagnoses, if you are, or taking them from an active list, because you know they can be pretty long in general practice, to an inactive, um, what information is actually going to be put, being put up. So the similar rules around the My Health Record are in place now. But when it first came in, my understanding is that actually under the age of 18, parents and guardians had access to the records, and that's now changed. So it's, to the, it's the 14 rule now as well. So once young people hit 14, their parents and guardians no longer have access to My Health Record, but they obviously can with consent of that young person specifically. So just thinking about how that might play out in your practice, particularly if you're in a family, community practice, which you know everybody kind of does know everybody, making sure that young people are aware that they've got the right to that, that privacy from that perspective as well. Mandatory reporting. So all of us in the room that are nurses are mandatory reporters. The list is getting bigger and bigger every year. We seem to be adding on more professions and more disciplines, which is fabulous. So mandatory reporting comes from the Child, Youth and Families Act 2005, and it's when we form a belief on reasonable grounds that a child is in need of protection on the grounds that the child has suffered or is likely to suffer significant harm as a result of physical injury or sexual abuse, and the child's parents have not protected or are unlikely to protect the child from harm of that type. So there's some really key words when I read that. So it's child, so we think there's an age restriction to this, that the child has suffered or is likely to suffer. So it doesn't necessarily mean that something's already happened. It could well mean that, something, that there's a potential risk for that person. All right, we want to think about it from a physical injury and harm perspective, not just sexual abuse or assault. So it may well be sexual abuse and assault, but it may be other forms of abuse or harm as well. It applies to people under the age of 17 years, and I don't think there was any school nurses in the room, but if there are, we do know that there's some local policies and procedures through the Department of Health, the Victorian State Government, that actually would expand this out to people over the age of 17 as well if they're in their care with the duty of care. So just bearing in mind that you know, there's all these frameworks, but again, there's always those fine print lines to, to extra things that we might need to be doing as nurses. 
we need to be reporting that to the Department of Health and Human Services. And it's in the course of your employment. So if I'm just toddling down the street with my family on a Sunday and I see something, a child being abused, I'm not in my role as a nurse. So I don't legally have to be reporting that. I would be being a good citizen by doing that and doing the right thing. That's my feeling. But you wouldn't be prosecuted for not doing that. So when you're a mandatory reporter, it's very much in the course of your employment finding out that information. If you have a concern and you're not sure whether it actually falls within the remit of reporting, a mandatory reporting, you can have a, you know, a confidential or an informal chat with a child protection officer to help guide you if you were concerned. And we want to be making those reports as soon as possible because if there's harm already happening or likely to happen, we want that person to be as safe as possible. So it needs to be done in a very timely fashion. Hands up if you've made a mandatory report before. A few, yeah. Child Protection Services and the department are really happy for anybody to ring just with a concern and you can just have that hypothetical conversation with them. So Brody tells you that her mum can't know about her relationship with Thomas because she might belt her again like she did with her younger sister. Do you report this? Yeah, if, you, if you're concerned that there's risk of harm, um, Brody was not 17, so we would be reporting it, yeah? If, if you were concerned, and the reporting is done to the DHHS. The other thing is that you never quite know what's already been reported. So it may only be one incident, but you, they may, that person may have had a report three or four other times through other health professionals, particularly when we think about those really vulnerable transient populations that some of us do see. You might only see them once, and so you're not sure. But if you report it, at least that information is there. So if there is other stuff going on that we aren't privy to, they can actually put, link those pieces of information together. Hands up if you know about failure to disclose legislation. It's a Victorian-specific law. It came about from the Betrayal of Trust Inquiry into Child Sexual and Institutional Abuse in 2014. <laughs> it's recent. So Brody is 15. Let's say Thomas isn't 17. Let's say Thomas is 18. Under failure to disclose law, we actually have to report that, even if they're having consensual sex. And you've identified Brody as a mature minor and understanding everything that's going on with their body. Yeah, we're reporting that. Does anyone know who we're reporting it to? Police. Yeah, so not child protection, but actually police. And it needs to be the local police to where that person lives. On mm. the whole, as practitioners at Sexual Health Victoria, this has caused a lot of problems for us because we are having confidential, safe, consultations with young people about their sexual reproductive health. Our aim is to support positive, safe, respectful sexual relationships and we are reporting this to police. So it's very difficult for us. So all adults in Victoria, regardless of whether you're at work or not. It's really resulted in a prosecution of someone failing to report but it does carry a maximum, at worst, it's a two-year prison term. We haven't had any cases that we've been involved directly with that have been prosecuted. But I've definitely been involved and had to report to police, which has been very difficult. That happened during the pandemic. We're supporting a young person with a medical termination of pregnancy. Their partner was older. The information, despite my best efforts, because obviously we want to know they're safe and we need we know about the rates of intimate partner violence and sexual violence and family violence, and we want to ask young people if they're safe at home. It's really important. Mm. You know, we need, to, we need to try and strike a balance with these laws is, is the ultimate aim. 
and how we conduct our consultations. When I've spoken to the police in the past, I'm very clear about what I'm reporting. I say this is a consensual, safe sexual relationship yeah, and I don't give them any more information. I haven't been aware of any further prosecutions, but the police can make their own decisions within their own operational policies and they could potentially prosecute. That's the problem. And for the adult in the relationship, that person could go on the sex offenders registry. Mm. And that I have seen happen. And, you know, think about how many of us know about relationships between 15 and 18-year-olds. It does happen. This is the one law, the failure to disclose, that brings up lots of concerns for nurses. Quite understandably, we spend 45 minutes on this in our training talking about case studies and how they apply. We've got a whole bunch of information here on our courses. If you'd like to take a leaflet, we've got some manuals. I can see that we're out of time. Yeah, sorry. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us here on Nursing Australia Summer Series Episode 1, Sex Ed. I hope you enjoyed this first episode in our three-part summer series. Happy summer. Enjoy the holidays. Stay safe, particularly stay safe on the road. Stay away from heavy drinking and be wary of those family dynamics. Happy New Year for 2023. We will see you in part two of our summer series in a couple of weeks' time as we look into aged care. Where to from here? And... The most important trending topic and most popular trending topic in healthcare and nursing of 2022, legal issues in healthcare. Stay tuned. You're listening to Nursing Australia on your favourite listening app available now on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. And now we are on iHeartRadio. Thank you so much for supporting Nursing Australia. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.